The manatee has no natural predator. I tell people this fact often as I find myself talking about manatees more often than you'd realize. There's a few things about them that I know by heart that I like to share. I've talked about them so many times in the past and people are usually fascinated by them. They're odd little creatures. So I always find ways to bring them up. The first thing I always say is that manatees have no natural predator. Scientists have observed that if they shared similar waterways to larger predators, they might be attacked by, say, a shark or a crocodile, but they are rarely passing each other by, and even if they were to be in the area of these predators, they'd hardly be a delicious meal. You see, their distinctive size is not because they have particularly large amounts of fat. In fact, their size is actually due to their massive digestive tract. The manatee has to eat so much food in a day, around a tenth of its body weight every single day, and send it through its various intestines and stomachs. They literally just scrum the bottom of the waterways, munching on any vegetation that passes before them, just so they can get through one day, and then they start all over again. Which is why, as well, they are averse to cold waters and temperatures. Metabolism generates heat when you consume food, but manatees have such low metabolism that it produces very little additional heat for them. Couple that with their limited body fat, manatees are prone to getting very, very cold. Luckily, Florida's springs provide a safe harbor for them during the winter months, and nowadays it's likely you'll see them drifting up rivers and streams, finding themselves nestled over a font of spring water, bumping into each other as adoring onlookers watch from the boardwalk. I intend to be one such onlooker this winter myself. But everything I just told you about the manatee is a chain reaction. Three fascinating factors about the life of a manatee that also leads to its vulnerability in this world dominated by human intrusion. What happens if the manatee, an animal that relies heavily on its constant consumption of food, finds itself in a place where there is limited food? What happens when the animal without a predator starts to die in huge numbers, not because it's being hunted to extinction, but being starved? You don't have to travel very far in Florida to find this exact situation occurring right now. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This is the conservation season, and this is a big chapter in our story. What is happening to the manatees of Florida? I went to Southeast Florida to chat with a friend about this situation and see the locations related to this story firsthand, and so I could meet the people trying to resolve this crisis. My guide for this story is Max Chesnes. He is a journalist at TC Palm. I have been reading his stories about the manatees for a couple of months and realized when this was going to be a season all about conservation in Florida that he was exactly the person to call. So I sent him an email and he invited me down to South Florida so I could see the Indian River Lagoon in person. Um, my name is Max Chesnes. I am the environment reporter for Treasure Coast Newspapers. I cover three counties here on the Treasure Coast. Uh, the southernmost area right here where we are right now is Martin County. It extends up through St. Lucie County and then up to Indian River County. Um, hundreds of thousands of people live in this region and um, currently focusing on several issues, environmental issues in the area. The predominant one that's taking up most of my time is the ongoing manatee die-off. That is what Max calls it, the ongoing manatee die-off. 
Max and I, as we are talking, are standing on a boardwalk overlooking the Indian River Lagoon itself. Dogs are barking in the distance, and people have picnics by the water. Below, fish slip by, ignoring our presence above. Where we are today, if you look around us, uh, we are standing above the Indian River Lagoon, which stretches 156 miles. Uh, we are at the southernmost point right here to our south. Uh, is the conjunction where the St. Lucie River and the lagoon meet. And if you look to the north, it extends all the way up to Brevard County. And this right here is the uh, ground zero for the manatee mortality event this year. Um, over 950 manatees have died so far in the Indian River, or in, in the state, and uh, well over a third of those have occurred right here. Is that like an unprecedented number? Yes, absolutely. Um, it exceeded the, uh, the record uh, last month of 830 mortalities. And uh, we could be on track to surpass 1,000 by the end of the year. So from August to September, which is when we recorded this interview, the manatee death shot up by over 100, putting that number that Max mentioned into play, over 900 manatee deaths. That has never been seen in Florida history. That is just an unprecedented number. And Max didn't just discover this story overnight. It began with one email in late winter of this year. The story has evolved, obviously, as the event has evolved over the past few months, but I really started looking into it. It was, I think, February, and I got an email from a local reader here who lives in Stewart, and it was just an image. It was, uh, there was no description. It was just an email attachment with an image of uh, a manatee that was uh, on its back, upside down, in uh, one of the local canals over here and uh, was all inflated and it had died probably three or four days prior. And obviously there was no context, so I followed up with her and, and, and got some information from her. And she said, yeah, it, it washed up into our canal and uh, it's kind of been floating in and out with the tide for the past day or two and figured I'd send it your way. And that was really on the crux of what would become this massive event, right? Um, the, the first story that I wrote came after that. And uh, basically the story started off with, you know, we're seeing a spike in deaths, but we didn't know really the magnitude of what it would become, which is you know, close to a thousand at this point. But... Um, Really, it started off with that picture, and then when I published that one, I had three or four more readers reach out to me with photos that they had taken right here in the Indian River Lagoon of manatees they found that were dead. And we kind of compiled all, compiled all those pictures together, and it became this sort of just steamroll effect where the more we wrote about it, the more people would reach out and say, hey, I've seen XYZ, you know, dead manatees. And um, it just grew and grew, and then obviously the pattern of, of the deaths continued through the summer. So locals are sending Max and his colleagues photographs, and it becomes clear that this is not an isolated incident. Something is happening to the manatees, but what? In discussing the impact this die-off is having in the community, he mentions that locals have started contacting congresspeople about the water quality in this area. It turns out the lagoon and this manatee die-off are directly connected to a different but equally devastating ecological event in Florida. That's why the Innumerable Lagoon is so unique, because there's sort of this pincer move of different water quality impacts that affect this waterway specifically. Here in the southern region, 
um, we have a, a human engineered connection to Lake Okeechobee. And uh, if the lake gets too high, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers decides we need to get rid of the water. Uh, they'll send it east into the St. Lucie River, which is just to our south over here. Right. Um, those discharges, uh, which began decades ago, have accounted for thousands of acres of seagrass sea loss here. If you are unaware, Lake Okeechobee, which we will be calling Lake O a lot in this episode, has long had a massive issue with a blue-green algae that appears on its surface and has a serious impact on the surrounding ecosystem. The history of this lake is having residual impacts, lasting from a century ago to this very day. And the story with Lake Okeechobee really begins in 1928. Yeah. Uh, there was a hurricane that came through, uh, loaded the lake with water. And that water headed south and flooded the communities to the south of the lake. And uh, well over 1,000 people died uh, in that storm. Following that, the Army Corps kind of came together and decided we need to build something that can prevent that. Um, and so they, that was kind of the birthing point of the Hoover Dyke, which is a 15-foot-tall dike that surrounds the entire area of the lake. And specifically after Hurricane Katrina, when the Corps saw dike failures in New Orleans, it really made the Corps realize, okay, flood control needs to be the main priority of this lake. Right. Because we can't risk another flooding event that happened like in Katrina or in 1928. So the way the Corps manages the lake is from a flood control perspective, right? They don't want to flood the surrounding communities. Right. And they want to make sure the water stays in the lake. Um, but what makes matters more complicated is that um, people around the lake use that water for drinking. The city of Okeechobee uses Lake Okeechobee water for drinking. Uh, you have farmers to the south and to the north of the lake that use the water for irrigation for their crops, for sugar, for their cattle. They're drawing water from the lake. And on top of that, um, there are two human engineered canals that head to what are called the northern estuaries, right? So yeah. the St. Lucie estuary is where we're at right now, just to our south and to the west coast, there's the Caloosahatchee estuary. Um, those are canals that the Army Corps dug decades ago to send the water for flood control east right. and west. Obviously, there was not enough foresight back then to realize that has a detrimental impact on the estuaries. And so, um, as the decades have gone on and we've seen the sort of ecological decline of this area, right. people more and more so began to point to Lake Okeechobee as the, the leading cause of that. So. It's, in short, um, <laughs> flood, <laughs> flood control, water supply, irrigation, and sending water where it shouldn't be. Right. Yeah. Um, beyond that, uh, there is currently, and I'm sure you've heard of it, another major story happening right now in Florida is the Army Corps is rewriting how they manage the lake. Right. Um, it's the first time in over a decade that that's been done. It's called the Lake Okeechobee System Operating Manual, and it is um, a pretty slow and meticulous process, but it has drawn a lot of attention from congressmen, from environmentalists, conservationists, anyone that has any sort of tie to either flood control, water supply, water quality, right. everyone has their foot in the pot um, trying to get their voice heard on how the, the Corps should manage the lake. And um, there's a lot of implications to that. I mean. Millions of Floridians in South Florida rely on Lake O for some way or another, whether it's recreation or, or if they want to boat or if they want to fish, uh, if they need their water to drink. So it's an important thing. It's an important pivotal moment, I think, in the history of Lake O. And yeah. it's happening right now as we speak. So. 
But Max wanted to show me Lake O's problems. So to hear more about that, we are briefly going to depart this boardwalk over the lagoon. We have to travel a few miles southwest up the St. Lucie River to the St. Lucie Lock and Dam. That is not static, nor is it a waterfall or a river in the traditional sense. It is indeed water, and a lot of it. Standing above it, there is a sharp mist filling the air as this brown water just dumps through the opening in the dam. It is a lot of water. It is very loud. I am literally standing above the dam. The St. Lucie Lock and Dam often opens to the public and allows visitors to walk across. Most people probably don't spend a lot of time observing the structures and systems of this dam. Most people probably just walk across to the picnic tables on the far side of the river for a view of the water and some seclusion, but Max and I are not here for the park. We are here for that water and the things floating within. Yeah, you can just see that with uh, you know, dead fish floating right there, sure enough. Um, but yeah, I mean, perfect example, you have grass clippings that are fertilized, that get cut when someone mows their lawn and gets into the water, and then heads east towards the river. Um, I mean, it's not, it's grass clippings, there's leaves, there's dead fish. It's, yeah. is it, that the bottom? How yeah, far does that go see, down? You can see the bottom and you can see how mucky that it's is. It's just muck. I mean, it's literally, the water is literally brown. I mean, if we were talking about the water back back uh, at the lagoon it being like yellowy yeah. green this is just brown yeah. and if you look over here so the gates are open um, and where we're standing currently is on top of the St. Lucie Lock and Dam which is basically the last barrier that connects uh, Lake Okeechobee to St. Lucie River so Lake Okeechobee is just straight that way man only 12 miles we're right here I mean this is that's not far not far right and uh a lot of uh, conservationists will say, well, it's a human engineered connection to the lake. And there's truth to that because if you look down this canal, it's just a straight line all the way down. Right, that's not how rivers work. That's not how rivers work, exactly. Um, and that water that has algae, I mean, just this week there was a 220 square mile algal bloom on Lake Okeechobee, which is about the size of Chicago. Right. Um, and when the gates are open by the lake, that water just comes right down the canal and into the river. But right now at the Port Mayaka Locking Dam, which is, like I said, 12 miles west of here, those gates are locked. So Lake O'Water right now is not flowing into the river. Okay. It's just runoff from this county that flows into the canal, heads this way into the river. So we got a health report yesterday. They announced a health report yesterday. That was just runoff from the river. For clarity, this was recorded on September 28th. The health report that Max mentions came out the day before. On the 27th and because max and i wanted to be in the heart of this story we are technically in the area that was warned about in the health report right so the health report yesterday actually was issued for this exact area where we stand right now um great and they're you know they've they advised against the public coming here what we're doing <laughs> what we're doing right now exactly um because some florida department of environmental protection water quality samples last week detected microcystin which is um, a common toxin that's found in blue-green algae. Right. Um, and it was it tested at a concentration of 0.41 parts per billion microcystin. At eight parts per billion, it becomes uh, harmful for humans, for pets, for animals to, uh, to touch, to breathe in. 
Uh, it can cause rashes, uh, liver issues. The samples that they took here a week ago, the results just came came back yesterday. And At above eight parts per billion? Lower than eight parts lower per billion. Lower than eight parts per billion. But enough for the, the county to go, don't sure. go near code the yellow, so, yeah. so to speak. A if eight yellow. parts is like code red, like that's pretty wild. Exactly. Now, earlier in the summer, those really hot summer days, like mid-June, um, July is when you'll see, you'll come here and you'll see algal blooms that kind of cover this entire area. They're bright green. They're hard to miss and they smell really bad. Yeah. Um, as the weather gets cooler, and right now, I mean, it's a beautiful day, the, the air temperature is a lot cooler than midsummer, the balloons sort of fade away. Right. And so to get a health advisory this late in the year is not normal usually. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that is probably because of the nutrients that are running off from agriculture over here um, that live alongside this canal. That runoff gets dumped into the canal, and then, as you can see behind me with the gates wide open, just pouring water into the river. Um, now where did that goes, that river going uh, east, that just goes straight to the lagoon? Straight to the lagoon, right. So St. Lucie River um, winds probably about 10 miles until it hits the lagoon. But along that way, you'll see houses and businesses, marinas, um, and that algae-laden water that's in this canal because of the excess runoff or excess uh, fertilizer ends up over there. Wow. So it wouldn't normally be that way if these gates weren't here. It would just be a natural flowing water body, but because of that human engineered connection to the lake, the water has to go somewhere. So just to give a summary of everything there in case we lost you, there is this toxin. It's called microcystin. It can appear in blue-green algae. In the past, there has been so much of this algae in the water that it appears in visible, smelly clumps on the surface. This happens a lot at Lake Okeechobee, but it also occurs in other parts of the dammed river because of the irrigation runoff from the surrounding areas. So when this algae builds up, it has residue that remains in the water, even when there isn't visible blue-green algae in those stinky clumps on the surface. It's, it's in the water now. At the moment that this was being recorded, there was a low percentage of this toxin in the water. Not enough for it to be very severe, but enough for it to not be favorable for people to be around this area for too long. Max and I are not the only people out on this dam. Some folks are at the picnic tables, like I mentioned. There is a boat using the lock to pass through the river, and the dam itself is mere feet away from people's actual homes. Where Max and I parked was a stone's throw from someone's house. In the midst of our conversation, by the way, that boat has been drifting our way, and it finally reaches the lock. The canal it's heading from is of a higher elevation than the river that it's going to. This means that the boat is going to enter this part of the structure at one level and exit at a lower one because the lock is going to drain said water into the river. But if the dam is used to prevent polluted water from flowing from Lake O out to the lagoon, the lock kind of undoes that, right? Okay, so we're going to leave the lock and dam now. We'll come back in a minute. We're going to go back to the Indian River Lagoon now. Max mentioned before we left that the Lake Okeechobee discharges and the runoff on the St. Lucie River are leading to, quote, thousands of acres of seagrass loss here, end quote. How does that happen? What happens is the water quality gets, you know, gets brown and darker like this and seagrass that's on the, on the surface or, or below the water, uh, the water surface need sunlight mm -hmm. to thrive. And when the water gets dark like this, uh, 
it lacks that oxygen and chokes out the seagrass. So Lake Okeechobee discharges to the south here is one problem. As you look further north and as we get higher along the Indian River Lagoon, it becomes more of a, a runoff issue. You'll have sewage systems, septic tanks that leak into the Indian River Lagoon. They dump uh, nutrients like nitrogen and phosphorus, and those nutrients act as a fuel for algal blooms. Right. Um, and when algae blooms, same thing that happens with discharges is the water gets darker, the seagrass below doesn't get the oxygen it needs, and it gets choked out. Um, and you'll see that up and down the entire lagoon, and, and uh, especially as you get further north in Brevard County. Yeah. The, the nutrient pollution up there is significantly worse than it is here, at least in the middle area. Right. And that's where you'll see the ground zero of the die-offs. There's been 300 plus this year in Brevard County alone. So it's a lack of diet. Is there a lack of a lack of, of, of sustainable nutrients for the manatees that is causing, or is that one cause of the die-off? Uh, it's the it's the pre predominant cause right now, and I mean there's probably ten different theories you could get from people depending on who you ask. But yes, the main factor right now in the die-off is a lack of seagrass. We talk about this a lot and have certainly discussed it a lot this season, but our ecosystem is deeply interconnected. This is not just something happening to the manatees. Our water has these nutrients in it from these blooms that darkens the water and prevents sunlight from passing through. Because of that, seagrass is not growing, or at least not to the degree it needs to be growing. That is in and of itself an ecological problem. But because this grass feeds the manatees, that is another ecological problem. So we have a plant being affected and an animal being affected in one chain reaction. What makes it detrimental is that seagrass takes a long time to recover, right? right. It takes five years, 10 years to really grow back in, in, in massive amounts. And once that supply has been depleted, manatees have nowhere to go to look for it. Um, and what's compounding the problem is when, when the water gets colder in these winter months, there are unnatural warm water sites. So, right. so manatees below 68 degrees Fahrenheit, they need um, warmer water to sustain their body heat. And um, what happens is, especially to the north of the lagoon, you'll get uh, warm water outputs from power plants. Right. And uh, when manatees converge there together and the, the food source has been depleted, it's basically a compounding impact, right? There's, there's no food, it's a barren moonscape on the seafloor, and they're all together because they need warmth, but there's no food. And so it actually makes the problem worse. Um, so you have sort of this conflating thing happening, right? Manatees that are converging don't have a food source. If they want to swim south to where we are right now, the seagrass has been largely depleted because of Lake Okeechobee discharges, and all of that comes together to create this event that we're seeing right now. And you can literally see it. This water is not healthy right now. The water we're standing over, it's full of nutrients. Yeah. Wow. Um, I don't know if people would know that if they didn't know that. I right. don't know if people would look at that and go, that's unhealthy water. Because it's just, you know, it's, it's green and, and, and it looks nice and blue going out that way. But obviously that's just the sky. Right. And one thing a lot of environmentalists will say is uh, water quality or water clarity does not imply habitat health. Um, so just because you see the surface right now or the bottom of the water doesn't mean that it's a healthy habitat. Right. Um, just because the water is clear doesn't mean that there's a sustaining habitat below it. Right, because the color of it, the filtering of it, means that there's something within it that is not 
Yeah, and I mean, you can normal. just look here on, on the floor and you can just see that there's not a lot of vegetation on the seabed. Yeah. Um, whereas if you talk to some of the locals that have lived here for 30 or 40 years, they'd come to this exact spot and say, oh yeah, I remember when there was thigh-high seagrass, eelgrass, that uh, just covered this entire area and it's just gone now. Is that affecting the fish that we see below us? Does it affect them as well? Yeah, I think I think it's a it affects the entire food chain, right? right? And so um, there are microorganisms that it affects uh, because they also need seagrass to survive and use them as part of their their food web. But then that that moves its way up, right? It goes to fish, it goes to manatees, um, and has sort of a ripple effect throughout the entire ecosystem. So to get back to what I, <laughs> I interrupted myself no, asking, yeah. but what, what is happening in the manatees that are causing it to be like that? If, if you know, I mean, if well, you could speak on that. When, when they die, uh, they bloat um, and they typically will float to the surface. So they're easy to spot, which is good for people like the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, because when they go to study these manatees, they have to find them first, right? Right. And... Uh, and actually, earlier in the summer when these deaths were peaking, there was a really, it was hard for a lot of biologists to come out and actually gather the, the data that they needed. There were so many dying that it really caused a strain on biologists going to actually recover these bodies. Right. Um, but we've also seen um, a, a sort of citizen involvement movement that, that helps these biologists. So they'll report um, carcasses that are floating and it makes it easier for the biologists to come and actually study what's happening. Yeah. And most of these manatees that, that are turning up are showing signs of starvation. Um, and that is what's suspected to be the primary cause of this die-off is, uh, you know, there's just a lack of food source. And that main food right. source is seagrass. I mean, you're saying suspected because there's, they're not 100% sure. I mean, you're saying there's signs of starvation. There's other factors that may be affecting them. Well, sure. And, and I say suspected because right now there's an ongoing federal investigation. Sure, there's a still there's still a study happening right. to say starvation is the leading cause in this die-off. Correct, right. Okay. But all the data, all the preliminary data is showing signs of starvation. Okay. The biologists have enough to go, this is what we believe is the case. Right. But you really need the federal investigation to definitively say that. Sure. But that's what the biologists think is true just based on what they've seen, all the emaciated manatees that they've pulled yeah. out of the water. Um, that's obviously the leading cause, but as in any year uh, in Florida, manatees are also facing boat strikes, you know, human watercraft. They're also facing um, impacts from red tide. And yeah. red tide is not an issue on the East Coast as much as it is on the West Coast. Uh, this year there's been, I believe, 36 manatees that have died from red tide-related uh, impacts. Um, and I think 80 have died from, from boat strikes this year. Yeah. Uh, both of those numbers are higher than obviously last year, so it right. just sort of compounds on top of this starvation event. Right. It makes it worse. Now, that is a lot of bad news. Decades of terrible pollution issues in Florida waterways, leading to massive seagrass shortage, resulting in manatees dying in record numbers. It's devastating. And standing over the water with Max, you can feel the onslaught of all these troubles. This lagoon is precious to so many, from humans to the tiny microorganisms that live within, and it's facing a dozen threats on all sides. But Max told me that there are some folks that we actually should hear from. We have to cross the lagoon to see them, so let's leave the boardwalk, hop across the causeway, and go visit our friends at the Florida Oceanographic Society.
We are east of the Indian River Lagoon now, and Max calls inside to request access. We are led inside by Mark Perry, the executive director of the Florida Oceanographic Society. The Society is a nonprofit that runs the property that we just entered, which is called the Florida Oceanographic Coastal Center. This society was founded in 1964, quote, with the mission to inspire environmental stewardship of Florida's coastal ecosystems through education, research, and advocacy, end quote. They have several programs that they run, including monitoring oysters and mangroves in the nearby water, educating locals about marine life and water quality, and protecting animals in need of care. Their 57-acre coastal center features one of the most unique spots I've seen while researching this show. It's a 750,000-gallon lagoon featuring fish and stingrays and sea turtles living within. From the top floor of their beautiful museum, which recently went through a renovation and is spectacular inside, I have to say, you can see the Indian River Lagoon to the west and the Atlantic Ocean to the east. I will admit when I am a little smitten by a place, and I was very, <laughs> I was very smitten by the Coastal Center. It's, it's just beautiful here. It's calm. It's exactly what you want this kind of place to be. There's just palm trees and cool water with protected Florida wildlife and a comfortable pocket right by the ocean. I mean, it's heaven on earth for a person like me. While they're open to visitors, they also run several projects, including one that is not quite as glamorous as the beautiful lagoon in the middle of the property. What I'm talking about is a series of blue tubs with water pouring in a steady stream into each one and a little window on the side so you can see what's in there. After Max introduces me around and we explore a little of the lagoon, we head to these tubs so we can see the real star of the show, the seagrass. This is Larray Simpson, who tells me what exactly these tubs are for. Can you just tell me your first and last name and what you do? Larray Simpson, and I'm the Director of Research and Conservation at Florida Oceanographic Society. Uh, can you tell me what we're standing next to? We are standing next to our seagrass nursery, where we take fragments of seagrass that have been collected along the shores of the Indian River Lagoon, and we transplant them, and hopefully, given time and a little bit of sunlight, they're able to propagate and make bigger mats that we can then take and put back out into the Indian River Lagoon. So why do we need to have, why is this system in place? What are, what is this sort of supporting in nature? So seagrasses are a very critical ecosystem in the Indian River Lagoon and actually globally. They support a lot of ecosystem services, whether it's water quality or habitat for small critters that the larger animals eat. They're also a food source for a lot of herbivorous fish or manatees and turtles. They act as a great um, carbon sequester, so they will pull carbon out of the atmosphere and store it in their biomass and their sediments for long periods of time. Wow. They help to baffle wave energy, so slow down waves uh, before they hit the shoreline, and also that can kind of dampen or help to suppress erosion. Wow. I mean, so we talked a little bit about this before, but can you talk about the variety of species that we're seeing in these containers? So in the Indian River Lagoon, there are seven species of seagrass, and here in our nursery, we have six of those seven, which is wonderful. And this is just a very simple grassroots movement where volunteers pick up pieces, and as long as there's a root on it, we try to grow it. And so, so far, we've been very lucky to get six of them. How many volunteers do you have doing that sort of thing? A lot, a <laughs> sounds lot. like. That's a great question. It kind of... Um, it morphs yearly, so I think right now 
we have several that are very, very active, and then a few that pop in, in and out. Yeah. But it just really depends on the time. There was a gentleman over there with a tool. What, what, what was he doing? What, what was the work that he's doing? So right now, Zach, he is a research associate. He was taking some data on the growth of the seagrass. We're growing seagrass in conjunction with clams to see how they can be restored together because right. clams will provide nutrients to the seagrass and then the seagrass will provide protection to the clams. And so by doing a small mesocosm study here, we can then use the data that we are able to collect and try to scale it up to a bigger project out in the Indian Lagoon. Leray mentions that kids on field trips walk up to the tub and peer into the little window on the side so they can look at the grass. They expect something to be inside, like an animal, but no, it's just grass. But Leray points out that the lagoon behind us, beautiful and filled with animals, would not exist without this seagrass. Well, I think one of the important things too, a lot of people forget is that these game fish out here in the lagoon, without seagrass, they wouldn't be able to survive. So they start, some of, some of them start their life cycles in the seagrass, that's where they feed, that's where they hide. And so if you lose that, if you just have a barren like moonscape of sand, where are they gonna be feeding? Where are they going to be um, living? Where are they going to spawn? And so when you lose something as simple as seagrass, you're really losing the base of a food chain. I mean, can, we, can you tell me a little bit about like how that loss has come about from, from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, there's several different reasons as to why seagrass is declining and it kind of depends on where you are in the Indian River Lagoon, but the major drivers are water quality and that water quality has to do with um, decrease in salinity, so a lot of freshwater inputs, as well as an increase in nutrients. That increase in nutrients you know, causes algal blooms and when there's a big algal bloom that takes place, it shades out the seagrass. And seagrass is a plant, it needs to photosynthesize, it needs sunlight, and so if you don't have that, it stresses it out right. and over time it dies. And if you don't, if you pull up, like just completely take away the algal blooms and just think about nutrients in general, nutrients are good to a certain degree, right? You know, you have your house plants, you give them some fertilizer. If you give it too much fertilizer, yeah. it ultimately will get stressed and die because yeah. too much can be a bad thing. So, I mean, not to get bleak, but like if we're growing new grass and we're putting new grass in, but the grass is dying in the Indian River Lagoon. I mean, how much of an uphill battle is this to restore the grass, to replant it? How much of a, how much, how much good can be done with projects like this in this situation? I think the biggest driver that we need to change is the water quality in the Indian River Lagoon. Right. So it's one thing to put grass out, but until we change the water that the grass lives in, it is an uphill battle. And I really think that if we're able to change our water quality for the better, seagrass will come back. Like Mother Nature just needs a chance. You know, She can repair herself. She's been doing it for millennia. And so if we can just help her along her way, I think that that's all we really need to do. What they do is they like literally grow this grass and there is a lot of variety of seagrass. We'll have to do another episode about their ecology because it's a fascinating little plant, but they literally regrow seagrass and then just like stitch it to the bottom of the Indian River Lagoon so animals can come and feed on it. It's amazing. It's like a transplant of this seagrass. It's the kind of thing that only really creative and passionate human beings would come up with and that's what these tubs do. 
there is a sense of hope and creativity in the people that we speak to here. There's a sense of urgency, obviously, but there's also a sense of excitement. Like these are problems that we can solve. We have smart people and resources and opportunity to do the right thing. And they're running the projects to do it. It, it feels like something beautiful can be done. But it's after our trip to the coastal center that Max takes me to the St. Lucie Lock and Dam. Because as nice as the lagoon may look, and as important as this seagrass is, we really have to see the source of the problem, as I told you about. So let's look at the water. Once we arrive, I ask Max kind of a hard question. If seagrass needs to be preserved to help the manatees, but water quality is the thing that is preventing the seagrass from maintaining its survival, what are we going to do about the water? From the state side, I think data is our best friend, right? Um, a lot of water quality monitors um, are needed to just show us the state of the water. Yeah. A lot of that's been limited, um, whether it's state funds um, being diverted elsewhere or lack of manpower. Right. Uh, so I think from the state side, data and actually posting that and letting the public know where there are issues is important. Right. And, and yesterday is the perfect example, right? The, the state came, they tested water here, uh, they processed those results, and it turned out the water is not safe for humans. Sure. Um, more of that needs to take place right. all across the state uh, to let everybody know so that us reporters can get a hold of that information and then let the broader public know. Sure. Um, from an activist side, I mean, there's a lot of advocates locally here. And again, this is kind of the center for a lot of water quality issues in Florida because of this connection to the lake, right. because of the lagoon. It's a lot of education. I mean, a lot of people don't know this is, it even exists. Yeah. Florida is such a massive state with so many dynamic issues. But um, the reason you're here today is to, is to sort of shed light on that. Yeah. And I think more people need to know that. Um, a lot of people contact their legislators, um, their congresspeople and prioritize water quality. I mean, there are people here that only vote uh, on water quality issues because that's sure. that's their bread and butter. There, right. are, there are businesses here that rely solely on clean water, that are ecotourism industries, that um, they need clean crystal water uh, with bustling wildlife to boost their revenue, to boost their people from coming from out of state, you know? Right. There's a whole tourism industry for swimming with manatees. Um, and people don't realize that, that, that the environment Florida is also Florida's economy, right? Um, and the health of the environment uh, directly impacts the health of the economy. I've heard that a lot as well in conversations with others for this season. This is an environmental problem first and foremost, obviously, but one thing that people always cite when they say we shouldn't be spending money on environmental projects is that it may not be worth the cost. But while I've find a lot of flaws in that logic. It's also not true. It is good for the economy to invest in preserving our ecosystem. So the argument just doesn't work. We are part of the chain of events that this situation is impacting. So it comes back to us in the long run. And I also ask Max the same question I asked Larray. How do we keep working on this project when it's an uphill battle? How do we change something that is as big as the water quality of our state? Well, and it's it's interesting when you when you speak to people like Lorraine who are working on planting seagrass back where it historically was. It's almost like two steps forward, one step back, because really the heart of the issue here is loading the water with nutrients, right? right? And until the state can learn to reduce the amount of pollution entering the waters, efforts like seagrass, planting seagrass, or planting aquatic natural vegetation. Are going to be hindered because you're only as good as your water right um 
So really the, the main solution here is, is the state um, correcting these polluted waterways, reverting them back to a, a place where they were you know, 100, 200 years ago, to then go ahead and plant seagrass to where you can ensure that it'll survive a year, let alone five, ten years, um, and then rebuild the ecosystem from the ground up. What is the sort of spirit you're getting from scientists? Like, what is the, do they have a positive outlook on this? Like, I mean, the people you speak to, like the folks at the Florida Oceanographic, like, is there a positive outlook? Is there a grittiness? Like, what's, what's, the, what's the vibe you get from folks, if, you're, if you feel comfortable saying? Yeah, I think, well, I think uh, in the midst of all of their work, I think the underlying theme that I get is hope. I mean, they wouldn't be doing what they're doing if they didn't have some sort of hope for a better future, for a cleaner environment. Um, People like Mark Perry, who are in charge of the Florida Oceanographic uh, Society, uh, they've they've been around this water for decades. Yeah. He grew up here where seagrass was lush and the water was cleaner. Um, and people like Mark, while they often express their frustrations uh, and, and they've sort of watched this gradual decline in ecological health, I think a lot of them get out of bed in the morning with that sense of, of purpose, of trying to make this a better place for their children, right? I mean, this, this is the, the land and the water that their children are going to inherit, and I think that's their cause that gets them motivated. And, um, you know, I think it's an, it is a noble cause. The work that they do is important for ensuring that this, all these abundance of natural resources are here for decades, let alone centuries um, to come. As we prepare to leave the lock and dam, Max says that one thing he hopes people become more aware of is the way that water moves through the state. Runoff from our private residences can connect directly to the rivers and waterways that dump straight into the major bodies of water. That's why fertilizer is banned in many parts of Florida at specific times of the year, especially around the Indian River Lagoon. I am miles away from the lagoon, but Orlando has fertilizer bans as well. It's simply part of life in the Florida summer. It's part of the role we play in this chain of events. We affect the water. The water affects our ecosystem. The ecosystem affects us. We are a part of it. We cannot be removed from it. That's exactly what Aldo Leopold tried to tell us with the land ethic. We are not separate from the environment. We are in it. And the more we distance ourselves from it, the more dangerous it's going to become to us in the long run, the impacts that we are having. And yes, it's an uphill battle. I keep saying it because it's all I could think of as we kept staring at the water and the seagrass, knowing the manatees are just trying to survive. Max put out an article in the last couple weeks about how there are more threats coming to the manatees in winter. And it's looking like the manatee death count is going to reach over a thousand before the year is done. That's just an unspeakable tragedy. But that doesn't mean we have to give up. There's a lot more of these animals that we can save. And even though it is an uphill battle, it is certainly one worth fighting. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I'm so glad that you are here. If you're brand new to the show or even if this is your first episode, 
welcome. I recently had a friend tell me that they were going back to the very first episode of the show to listen. I cannot recommend enough that you do not. It's been three and a half years since I started creating this show. The quality has improved, the writing is much better, and also, frankly, that show doesn't even resemble what this show is nowadays. As much as I appreciate those early days, I think that there's more to be discovered in the more recent episodes in the last couple of years than the first, like, 20 or so episodes of this show. Anyway, if you want to hear a little bit more about manatees, I have written about them in the past, and I have written about this area of Florida a lot. I have included some links in the description description about this area of Florida. Go listen to those episodes if you're looking for more. There is also a website just for you. It is called WFMPod.com. There are transcripts of past episodes, photographs from trips around the state, and I will be updating transcripts over the next couple of months from last season and this season as we approach the new year. Head to WFMPod.com for more. You can now pick up Wait 5 Minutes merchandise at Cast and Clay on Etsy. Cast and Clay is run by one of my best friends, Sophie Aparicio, who designed each of these stickers alongside the rest of their catalog. We've got a Drink More Water sticker, a Wait 5 Minutes sticker, and a sticker featuring the show's subtitle about Florida by a Floridian. Grab them individually or as a set of three at Cast and Clay on Etsy. Head to the link in the description to pick up your WFM merch now and keep an eye out because I think there's going to be some new stuff on the horizon very soon. If you did enjoy this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review. It helps the show become more visible and it means a lot to me. You can also find me and share the episodes on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. If you want to send me an email, you can do so at WFMPod at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. This episode would not exist without Max Chesnus. He generously gave me a huge portion of his day a couple of weeks ago to show me what this story looked like on the ground, and I cannot thank him enough for it. I would not have made this episode if it wasn't for Max's incredible work that he does every single day. I wouldn't have even known about it if it wasn't for the reporting that he does on this story constantly. So, if you enjoy more of Max's work, I will include some links to the main resources that he has written, the main articles that he has written about this story from the TC Palm I highly recommend that you subscribe to them. They do amazing stuff, and you should just see what Max is working on because this story is still growing, and Max has a lot more to say. I'd also like to thank the Florida Oceanographic Society for taking us in a couple of weeks ago. I am so grateful and am looking forward to visiting them again very soon to show you a little bit more about what life is like at the Coastal Center. All right. I know I say this every week, but <laughs> next week is kind of a big one. Maybe the biggest one I've done in a very long time. My guest is one of my favorite authors of all time, an author that I have admired for seven years, ever since I picked up her copy of Spook. Uh, she is Mary Roach. She is a nonfiction writer. She wrote Grunt and Stiff and Spook and is just a hugely influential writer on my career. I don't know if I'd be doing what I'm doing right now if it wasn't for the impact that her books have had on me. I, I love her so much. If you have never heard of Mary Roach, now's a good time to get into it because she just put out a new book called Fuzz that is about when animals break the law. And I had a wonderful, wonderful chat with her about that book, about animals, about our influence on the animals. There's actually going to be two episodes with Mary Roach next week. So on Monday, it's going to be a Florida-related story that is connected to some of the work that Mary Roach has done in her book. And then on Friday, I'll be putting out an entire episode of bonus content because you have got to hear the kinds of things that Mary Roach said, because I cannot believe that she said them. She's the best. Okay, so next week is Mary Roach week. I know it's also Thanksgiving, but 
for me, it's Mary Roach week, okay? That's just how it goes. Anyway, I will see you then. Be good to yourself. Be good to others. If you haven't gotten vaccinated, look into it to help those around you. And if it's time to get your booster shot, look into the information to get that done. And of course, drink more water. Please, seriously, I have some friends who aren't drinking enough water, and I'm sure you aren't either. Drink more water. I promise it'll make you feel better. Have a good week. See you next Monday for Mary Roach Week. (laughs) 